just just kind of uh, fact check because I think I I missed uh, one very important sentence which might contradict with what Andrea said, like, like your argument for devalorization. And you said something about this power museum as it reappropriating the value. So, like, I'm curious how you uh, would understand each other. Or So, I mean, maybe also, like, that's the, uh, what you are speaking about Para Museum is informing um, difficulty or challenge in the idea of imperial periphery and also devalorization. However, uh, um, yeah, okay. inspirational and empowering it is, or, like, Disempowering as a as a strategy, so it would be good to hear like yeah. thought of thought on both sides. Okay, let me try and begin. <laughs> if I if I've understood your point correctly or in the way that you mean it, um, so so I think a kind of. Maybe, if I understand what you're asking correctly, it, the difference would be between a para-institution, so a, a kind of a para as in alongside or within and, you know, um, in, in the Greek way in which you defined it, um, and something that changed the institution uh, imperially. I don't think there's so much difference, actually. I think that the in the concept of para-institution that you're putting forward, and I think there have been a number of different concepts of para-institution that are different from this. So, for instance, I think about Fernando Garcia Dori's idea of a para-institution. You're working with him at the moment. I've just done an interview with him for your book. Um, he means something very different. Yeah. I think I mean the same that um, Jana Graham means yeah. when she talks about um, education as a para. Yes, yeah. para-site. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that, but, uh, but even, the, even parasite as a metaphor that again is an overused metaphor within art um, is often misrecognized. So a parasite is um, working, a, a, the para of the site is an imperial relation or it's in a relation to the imperial in the sense that if we understand imperial kind of ontologically before we get to the kind of colonial understandings of imperiality um, that, that, that I began with effectively in my talk um, we understand it as being of the centre and of power now a parasite or a para institution works with the institutions of power whether it be in terms of economies so I you know and I've, I've also talked to Irit about the kind of the, the, the financial kind of info, you know, uh, relation you have with uh, Bergen and you know, with the, with the uh, triannual. But, um, but it also works alongside it. So if what we have in this fantastic rendition of the partisan cafe within the retired firefighters uh, occupation, which is a kind of sanctioned occupation in a sense, uh, because it's been it's been encouraged by the, 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 the fire officer, from what I understand from what you've just said. So it's not, it's, it's not quite the same as Occupy. It has a slightly different texture to it, in a sense, you know, and it has a different, you think? I'm not sure. Um, think? I think it's occupied. And at some point, they have asked us to keep the word occupied away from our material. Oh, really? And we didn't. Uh, you mean the firefighters asked you to keep it no. away? The Bergen. Bergen Assembly and the city of Bergen. Really? Yeah. But but the firefighters would would call it call an it occupation. occupation. It okay. is it is clearly an occupation. It's not an occupation so much with their bodies. They come twice a week, three yeah. times a week, but with their machines. It's clearly an occupation. You mean their fire engines? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so you when you retire, you get to keep the fire engine. No. They just they 
they could keep them. They have many of them. They are huge. And the city would have to take them out. And this oh, would be okay. a scandal. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they would have too many, like, fans. I mean... Yeah. yeah. And presumably... The engines occupied the building. But okay, so let's, it's really interesting. This, this, the, the detail of this complexity is where we get into the detail of how it might or might not be a light. There might be a para, the para relation might be the same as what I'm describing as working on the imperial periphery. But I think what's really important and fantastic about Nora introducing this very clear example into our debate at the end of the day, from me starting with these kind of. Um, conceptual kind of abstractions in a sense, is that we have, um, we immediately, as soon as we begin to unpick the very particular details between you, um, your co-workers, the, the happenstance of coming across the, this building that, that is then occupied, is where the materiality of the project comes from, but is also where its political modularities have to be reconditioned consistently. So what I really enjoyed about Nora's talk, and this is also maybe something that is related to how I was trying to describe the imperial pro pro prolifery, can't say it anymore, as you, as, as you asked, as your question indicated, is the kind of negotiation. So, um, so, so Nora, at the beginning of your talk, you brought up this idea of, of cha managing change and how this is also uh, a form of neocolonialism. So one of the ways we are, we are managed in our change or our change is managed and we have no control over it. And I take that completely and I agree with you. But I also think that within the practice of curating or what I call making, there is, um, there is in particular a, um, a form that is uncontrolled and that is actually often the site of political transformation. And I think that you've demonstrated this throughout your talk. So, come, you know, th this kind of synchronicity. And I think there's something there that needs to be introduced into management. So what we can introduce into management is the, is, I call it happenstance, it's not a very good term, um, but the kind of, um, the, 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 the kind of symbolic synchronicity that we work with so often in our practices that can be shifted into managerial practices that then recondition management. And I think this is something that we, when we move from content to structure, which you and I both completely agree on, then this is what we can do. And it's to do with practicing management and practicing with managers and, as you say, forming solidarity with administration, which is where we can do this stuff. And this is the work. This is the work that we need to do. So I don't think, to come back to your question, Binna, I think that we're, 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 mo we're moving towards the same kind of goal or set of goals or shifting goal or continuation, but we're using slightly different metaphors and languages around it. That's what I feel. I feel exactly the same. And, um, but it's, your question is interesting. And I ask myself is if anyone is able to devalue its own practice. I just, I am not sure if this is in somehow possible. What I think, I mean, especially because the only thing we can do is create value. This is what we do all the time, all the time, all the time. Now, two things. I mean, one, I work, I use the Nietzschean um, terms, umwertung der Werte, revalorization of values, um, as a let's say, radical ability. Um, but I also think that the post-colonial claim of provincializing Europe um, is valid, and I will not devalue myself, but I will accept a mo in a moment of devaluation that this has to happen. I, can I just respond to this value, this concept of devaluation? Maybe. I'm are you sure? Um, so, so I'm um, also looking at, and I've, I've, I've written quite a lot about the relationship between devaluation, because I think that for me, devaluation is a strategic political, um, uh, what would you call it? Like, like um, um, you know, a kind of attempt to change the the structure of thought, effectively. So, devaluation is a is a is an is a um, what would you call it, a, a kind of provocation 
to think about value and to think about the way that even when, um, and we learn this through institutional critique, even when we are attempting to undermine uh, the politics of the museum, for instance, actually what we're doing is producing value. So it's like, can we think in a different way? And the way that the place I went to try and understand this idea of devaluation for myself was to go to Judith Butler and Athena Athanasiou's idea of dispossession. And what they say in Dispossession, so there's this book called Dispossession, which was published a couple of years ago by Athanasio and Butler, and it's an email exchange between the two of them. And um, it's, uh, it's, 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 Athanasio in particular is informed by her location as an academic and an activist in Greece at the time of 2008 at the crisis. And the history of Greece at this point is has become clearer and clearer since this happened. Yeah? And, um, and so she's looking at, they're both looking at the concept of dispossession both as a political um, violence. So of course this is, you know, and one has to remember that the, 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 one of the things, one of the major things that manifested the banking crisis in 2008 was uh, the overvaluation and the, cheap, the, the ability to get cheap mortgages or cheap loans on property. So dispossession was real in the sense that people were having their houses taken away from them because they could no longer afford to take it. So they have this dispossession on one hand, but then they also talk about dispossession as a subjective um, demand that we need to dispossess ourselves in the face of capitalism. And so what they do is they, they call it a double valence or a double kind of bringing together of these two forms of dispossession. And the book really is all like moving between these things. Can we bring these things together? Can, so for me, I take this model and I apply it to value because I also write about the art market. So I write a, so I, I say, okay, so if one of the problems we have that conditions the way that museums and galleries are run is the market, you know, blah, 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 long story, but we all know how it works, then, then what happens if we devalue it? You know, and then, and then we have lots of practical questions, et cetera, et cetera. But so that this is where, this is how I'm trying to think devaluation. Just to respond, Annette. Well, uh, it's just a very quick thing. I think it's not, or for me, it's not about uh, value and devaluation and devaluation, but more about that there are values and some values are more valuable than other values. And what does it mean to inhabit the ones that are not so valuable and uh, that are not um, in the regime of hypervalorization, like reproductive labor, for example, and to insist to inhabit these practices. And I think that is uh, what relates it back to the, uh, the, the site for unlearning and what you have been pointing at, that it doesn't, it might not kind of tie in uh, uh, into a, a more global um, uh, um, st uh, movement of struggles. Um, I think that is the, well, I guess that is where I could link back to Lila Gandhi because she brought up this beautiful uh, moment, which is like, Belief or not belief, like it's the belief in the contagious relationship between the the micropolitical, the the, the the small little moments, like the way that we believe in that the 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 things that we eat, the things that we yeah. do, do have actually a relationship, do link up and do provoke a change within uh, um, the the regimes that we detest so much. In that case, uh, global capitalism, but of course, it also does it the other way around. So the contagious relationship is also with all the things that uh, we habitualized um, and do kind of uh, perpetuate capitalism. So this is, I, I guess, where I, where I myself would like to think much more through institutional critique, because I, in a way, I, d I really do not want to give it up, but I know that it's like the way we have learned about it and we are practicing it is not, well, we have to do better. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I theoretically don't agree, but um, especially now um, practically. I mean, I have been teaching institutional critique and educational practices for many years, but one day in Vienna, when I was in the seminar that I was teaching, the university was occupied. And I continue to teach the seminar in the occupied aula, and it was another seminar. It's... 
before that, we reflected all the practices, we tried them out, we worked on a, on a micro-political level, but in this moment, and also my view on my own topic changed completely. So again, like you are emphasizing the importance of getting outside. Yes. Of, of the, I, I emphasize the, the, the classical political moments, the, the, the political organizing of art workers, that, that I would relate, but not see it's the only one, but in this contagious way, to the insight, to what is going on in this space. But I, Matteo. Sorry. No, I was very much interested in reconnecting uh, two points of uh, uh, Nora's very interesting talk about the fact of uh, uh, reaching the idea of parasite that etymologically speaking is about eating at someone else's table, eating the food of someone else. So the idea that of contagion, you know, because you, you expose yourself to the risk of eating someone else's food and therefore maybe understanding the logic of that other table that you are sitting at. So this idea, and, and, and going back to this uh, like uh, critical disconnection between theory and practice uh, in the curatorial work, because that's maybe also what I'm more interested in, and, and thinking about this parasitical action as a way really of, uh, as a curator really, I really believe it could be uh, the possibility of keeping eating at as many people as possible tables to understand other logic and organically also reproduce other logic within the curatorial work. In the sense that that space of uh, in between the inside and the outside can really be a space of uh, contamination of uh, how other system works and also be aware that is bidirectional in the sense that as you you know in, we call it appropriation but isn't like also an appropriation in first place you know like also understand learning from uh, uh, creating a, a coffee house with uh, an occupiers of a fire station is also appropriating in some ways their idea of museum their struggle and to turn it into something else perhaps so also to, to not to fall into an antagonistic dynamic and that paralyzes instead of parasiting. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's uh, uh, yeah, something we also talked about in December. And then if we, you know, last in December we were talking more about bureaucracy and now also you get into this uh, Max Weber idea of how you can uh, be much more effective within a system rather than no, like to, to be in the outside. But yeah, being fugitive would be too easy sometimes. So that's all. I just wanted to reconnect because I find it very interesting as a, as a way in which something you said in the beginning could be responded to in the end. Yeah. Um, so I think um, it, um, I can answer, maybe first of all, I am very happy that I work with Isa Rosenberger, who is an artist who um, in her practice uh, always works with other people. That's her art practice and uh, she is very interested in this kind of rela relational but also really interested in um, practices of other people. Uh, I personally uh, feel very related to the ones that like me and don't like at all the ones who don't like me. I mean, I, f I realize it. I sit in this assembly and some of them hate us. But also I understand them because they say so cool things. They say, for example, uh, um, there is this, um, they say something like, yes, great, because I said, what did I say? I said, um, yes, thank you so much for your hospitality. We came here to Bergen in order to create a cafe and to be the hosts, but now we realize we are the guests of you, the occupying firemen. Then they say, yes, thank you very much. Are you now inviting us as well to your house in Vienna? Um, or they say, um, we don't need that, we don't need that. And someone else like from Bergen Assembly says, but it's great, they are all professors, they are experts in museum, they can maybe help you for your museum. And then he says, we don't need experts, we need people who work. <laughs> 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 yeah, in 
both cases, very good point. In both cases, he pointed out kind of the patronizing weakness of our speech. So fantastic. Yeah. So I don't say I don't like this guy, but um, I, in my fantasy, I mean, he says great things, but in my fantasy, he is not politically on my side because my feeling when I work with the firemen is that the ones who are on our side also understand the fun and the dialectics between a museum of firefighting and a museum of burning questions. Because the firefighters want to fight fire, but we also want to bring a bit of fire. And um, this is, they take it with a certain irony, but I feel they get it. So I love this, this relation. Um, that they, as leftists, know also the image of the burning question. And so, with the, so I personally have with them, and also the way how they deal with the assembly relates to how I deal with the assembly, and so on. This is my relation. Um, now, the Bergen city will have a, has a very positive relation to these firefighters. They think they are heroes. And I personally hope that this will make the space in itself a heterogeneous space, because we all know that coffee houses all over the world are gentrification engines, and obviously also ours. I don't say it's not, but we want to reflect it. But at least I want it to be a heterogeneous space, so not only a place for art crowd to sit in. So my hope is that the firemen bring their family, their friends, and so on, and also the, the people who think they are heroes, like fathers with their daughters, mothers with their sons, will come and enter in order to get to know something about the history of fire. And like this, we will mix and mingle a bit, not only, and not only remain in the art world. So now, still there is something, a problem remaining of what you say, that is that um, if you do something like this in the art world, you always have this danger of exhibiting people. And um, I hope this will, will not be the case because we will present them as people who um, work on the concept of a museum and who will also be there and give guided tours. Not as, oh, I'm an exotic firefighter, but I'm a person who has a long knowledge on the history of fires in Bergen. It, it's but it's but 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 it's also a temporal question, isn't it? As well, because I mean, you, you you're there for a certain um, six, weeks. six weeks, okay? So so I think we also need to think about these things on a much longer term basis. So Anatta, I think it's you know, for instance, you're in residency here for two years doing this project, and some people would say two years is not enough, you know, whatever, <laughs> or whatever you call it. Okay, so you're going to claim it's a 12-year project now, huh? But I'm, I'm thinking also, Matteo, back to your, your point, and uh, I was talking earlier on about Leela Gandhi, and she has this concept of psychic contagion. So instead of... Um, Instead of, uh, she says she's bored of, uh, of the kind of the weak forms of kind of diachronic or dialectical um, positioning that we are, you know, as I would say, as, a, you know, as somebody who's schooled in the school of Marxism, we're very used to using as a, as a way of, of thinking through problems. But actually, she talks about psychic contagion, and it was interesting that this relates back to the, the, co the concept of the parasite. But... How do, I mean, this is a real question, you know, Nora, about the, something obviously I've also tried to do as well uh, and, and failed miserably at, to come back to Beckett. Um, but the, how, how does one produce the conditions of a program in which one finds a mode of not putting people on display? within the context of a biannual. And you know I say that from the heart. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Can I, can I also ask yeah. extra on that? Because that's also something that I'm quite interested in, but also from the question of positioning an art organization within a social struggle, for example, like, but a larger social struggle, like also relating back to your rise of the fascist uh, fascism now, like what if you are an art organization that works with political groups um, which is something hip and interesting, yeah. something that brings you funding if you have good collaborations, good relationships, but which is also something that is very important to do and 
maybe something we should do more or whatever, but how do you, because sometimes you should not at all represent, make this visible. At least, well, this is what I'm struggling with. Like, when do you make these relationships and also your legitimation, legitimization of positioning yourself in social struggle from the bottom up sort of visible and when not, because sometimes it can also be harmful. Like, so I'm wondering, like, this inside and this outside, like, when do you use this, this exhibiting of people, which is something I've, I find yeah, quite problematic. Like, when do you use this for getting funding so that you can actually have the resources to help or to facilitate or contribute to such a struggle? And when do you just keep silent and be like, well, this is happening, well, but that's none of your business, you know? Like, yeah. I, I, thought very much about this is a very important question. Do you want to add? No, no, I just wanted to come back to this question of the exhibition in a way, um, because we're sitting in an exhibition talking about sort of longer time frames, talking about processes of working. Um, we're talking about sites of political struggle, but then are being um, manifested or articulated through a six-week intervention in an exhibition in a biannual structure. Um, so there's still this constant need to come back to the exhibition as a as a model or as a platform and I just wonder if we should sort of reflect on that a little bit like um, we're still very intent on making exhibitions and, and performing the things that we uh, are kind of wired to perform um, I, this is something that I, I, I've Okay, so, so I don't earn my money through being a curator. I have an academic job, so I can say this, okay? I think sometimes, quite often, we need to stop making exhibitions. I think it's really clear. And one, when I was um, giving these examples of um, uh, um, uh, imperial proliferalists, if I can say it, um, the, the, one, of the, one, of the, one of the reasons I kind of, in a way, began with curators that I admire who work in educational and research positions within museums and galleries, but then moved to people that work in social work and in primary and secondary education, like below age 18 education, sorry, I'm using British terminology there. Um, so not higher education, not people like me. It's because I'm interested in what we can learn from their practices, not only their practices of life, but also their practices of work and management, because I think we can learn a lot um, about, uh, about our, what I would call, our economy of visibility. Because if you're a headmistress, as I described this headmistress in this school in Hackney, um, in London, if you're a headmistress, of course you need to be visible at certain points, but the modes through which you're visible are not necessarily, they're, they're not, they're not related to an exhibition, and it would be ridiculous to think about them in relationship to exhibition. But you have to be visible in meetings, you have to be visible, you know, uh, to your kids at a certain point, to the kids that you look after, and, but much of the time you are invisible, and this is also to do with um, the, the, the hidden curriculum, for instance, that, that the processes of unlearning that go on in education go on below, below the, the kind of formal education patterns that are imposed. So I think that in... These bells are so loud, huh? But, the, but, the, the, but I think that we could really do with examining our social and working economy in relationship to other social and working economies and find ways to learn from them. So, Nora, you're going to learn a lot about the fireworkers' economy. But, but I think that this, but this also comes back to the Partisan Café and Stuart Hall and the Foundation of Cultural Studies, because this, is, in a way, is precisely what they were trying to do. Yeah, I mean, it's great. But perhaps it should also be the other way around. I mean, I don't know. I mean, perhaps it should not so much be that the that the art organisation learns from the teachers or learns from the whatever, but right, but but the, the investment in a way in our practice, as far as I can tell during this discussion, right, is that it, within its conditions, also reflects its conditions, and that's why it's exciting. That's why maybe it's more exciting than being a doctor, because being a doctor has a, 
you know, a very prescribed and very unmalleable like set of conditions by which you work. So, I mean, I also just wonder whether whether it should really be the other way around. Yeah, I would like to react to that. Um, I think so much about it. And today I've learned a new concept, this concept of the uh, imperial periphery. I have to say it's helpful for me to answer this question also. This question of how to relate, how to relate to existing social struggles. I mean, it's clearly a position of imperial periphery and somehow if you, if any other position I think is to reject. So, and so this means it's a decision. And if you take this decision, then you have to hold it. Now, I have many examples where it didn't work. Like for example, the dean, like the rector of the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna, signs every letter for refugees that is possible. But in the moment when the refugees have occupied the academy, she's threatened with the police. So if you do this, then you, you, you just don't sign letters. I mean, there's no sense for that. Um, but if, if you take the choice, it's a complicated choice because then what are you doing when your own institution is occupied? And it, it might go on your own costs. And you have to know that this position is very likely to go on your own costs. And but then comes also with many questions because people come to me and ask me, can I occupy a space that you are responsible for? And then what is the position of the imperial periphery? I mean, my position is to say, if you occupy it, I will accept you as the occupier. But if you ask me and I say yes, you will not have occupied it. For me, this is a, this is a very specific position to take it's not, I think, exactly a position that um, promises a lot of success and a lot of money, but at some point it might promise success and money. It's, it's not that it's not at all, but when it is, the question is, what is, I mean, in somehow we have to discuss it a lot and share it and collectivize the debate of what is patronizing. Mm -hmm. To a certain extent, we also know it. I mean... I, and this comes back to your question about why is it not the other way around. I mean, I think one of the reasons it's not the other way around is because, um, uh, because doctors and school teachers don't they earn a, they earn a wage if they're lucky, but they don't they, they don't have the highs and lows. They don't have this kind of it's not going to be successful and money making etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So we so we also need to um, recondition our economic thinking about our lives in a sense so there's a there's there's ways in which we need to begin to think of um out normalizing our lives so so yes i'm sure if i'm a doctor or a nurse or a school teacher i think being an artist or a curator might be exciting but i don't think it is exciting i mean is it exciting Yeah, but that's just because I trained in theatre. No, I think it's fantastic. It's super exciting. It's so great to see you with someone not threatening me. It's not. I'm in university every day. I'm so happy when I'm somewhere else where I can lose my job. And yeah, for me, it's exciting. It's the possibility to struggle and to do these things. It's the only. Um, yeah, I haven't quite thought this through or got to where I should have got well, you're to. You're suggesting that Nora and I thought through everything we said. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a question for you, Andre. I, I wonder with this um, idea of the imperial periphery, what the relation is with the concept of hegemony um, and the idea of the hegemonic and also sort of to bring in Gramsci, who was floating around and Stuart Hall was floating around. Um, like this relationship between civil society and the state and the, the way the sort of role of civil society and how its capacity in sort of Gramscian terms uh, has the capacity to form different hegemonic positions. So, and I wonder if, is there a relationship there between the idea um, of the imperial periphery and its relationship to the hegemonic? Is that... 
Yes, I mean, I, I would be um, with Gramsci on the, um, on the understanding or the, the analysis of, um, of the way in which uh, civil society um, produces and performs a hegemon. So, so, I mean, that seems very clear to me. In fact, I, I, I tend to uh, be quite concerned around the idea of civil society or the civil or the civic in a sense. I mean, they, they're, 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 they're words that make me worry about um, the very conditioning that Gramsci very carefully diagnoses. Um, I, think, I think that th this position uh, that I borrowed and I'm probably completely bastardized from Leela Gandhi uh, of the imperial periphery is precisely one that has, if you will, one foot or one leg in that society or within that hegemony and one that's not exactly opposite to it. So it's not quite an inside-outside position, but one that is negotiating with it. And now the, the analogy with the body is going slightly strange. But, but the, so I think that the, um, the relationship is precisely one of dealing firstly with oneself, with the power that one has. As a, as a museum curator, as you are, as an academic, as I, I am, as an artist, as Annette is, that we have different forms of power and we need to be able to recognize those forms of power quite clearly, particularly in a situation where we are, we're often um, thought of as and made to think of ourselves as relatively powerless compared to governments, compared to we have power. And this position is called by Gramsci the position of the organic intellectual. Yeah, exactly. But, it's, but I think what Leela Gandhi does, and, and, and actually, as you say, Gayatri Spivak also in Aesthetic Education draws on Gramsci very clearly. But um, I think that, um, that, the, the, that what Leila Gandhi is, Leela Gandhi is saying from the Imperial Periphery, what she means is somebody that is, is working from from the imperial, but learning from and recognizing uh, other forms and other conditions of life and letting them um, contage her. I don't think there's such a word as contage. Now there is a problem. I, can, I, can I just yeah. add? Now there is a problem. In Gramsci, he, it's very interesting, this concept in Gramsci, I mean, a bit uh, governmental Foucaultian avant la lettre, but this concept of transformism. Gramsci, um, I mean, he, you talked about Lebenswelt, so he, yeah. thinks, he thinks a lot about education. Actually, he says that every uh, relation of education, every relation of hegemony is a relation of education. And um, this education, coming, knowing around himself in his life in Italy, uh, is ref reform pedagogy has been discussed. So he believes that education is not a one-way street. He believes that education is, goes both ways around, which means that hegemony learns from struggle mm -hmm. as much as struggle learns from hegemony. So this is the problem. Now, if, if we are not organic intellectuals, but bourgeois intellectuals, we take the knowledge from struggle and make the institution learn. This is most of the most of the times. This is the case when people invite um, struggling people. But organic intellectuals. It's also very important. Organic intellectuals, other than bourgeois intellectuals, are not individuals. They are. It's a collective position. They are part of a struggle as a collective, and then this would be this would be different. This would be a position that would fight against the, transfor the, the transformative appropriation of the knowledge of the struggle in the institution. And, and the imperial periphery is a position that's individuated, and it is also one that has that danger in it. So, so in, in saying we need to think about it, it's, it's, it's both recognizing it's, it's where we are already, and it's very, very related to putting people on display. I mean, it, there's an affiliation between this, this criticism about, you know, what, how do you stop putting people on display? 
Um, it, it, and I, I think the reason it's a useful, for me, it became a useful concept was precisely because it seemed to describe a condition that I felt myself to be in and many of my friends to be in, that that's how we worked. But to have it um, understood in a different way, in a positive way by this post-colonial theorist allowed me to think slightly differently about the modes and um, site of work that we inhabit. And that's why I found it useful. But doesn't it, I mean, simply, well, very, very difficult way mean that we have to work on many fronts at the same time? I mean, really kind of being aware that there are individuating processes, but also structural processes, of course. So having them together, and we have to find ways to negotiate and also see how the institutional processes are enacted by us. So continuously again and again, and basically what, what I take out of it is it, it, we can never stop. I mean, we have to, to work on that because once, I mean, there, there is this moment of appropriation which has been brought up very rightly. Um, so we have to f invent or work on different forms that are already there very often and in other struggles that we are not looking at and, uh, uh, um, and, and see ways of alliances and solidarities, how we can kind of tie in yeah. and find other ways of acting. And, and I think for a long time I thought we, we, we have to want hegemony, we have to never stop instead of avoid hegemony. Um, I'm not sure if, if I see ourselves in this position in the moment in Europe and in the world. I see myself more and more in the position of Gramsci in the fascist prison. Um, and then my question is rather in the moment, it's how can we, survi how can we survive in going on? It's, and I want to be, I, I still want to think hegemony and I, I, I don't want to give up to get it, but also I want to prepare to survive if we don't. I also have a very unformed thought, so my apologies ahead of time. I'm trying to think through some of the things you've been discussing, and I keep being drawn to like very practical social condition questions. And so I'm thinking also about ethics very much. And so one of the things I come to very much in relationship to the things that we've been talking about, displaying people, is it feels often that people are, that are interested in this kind of work, it turns into a type of tourism where you step into a role for a while, maybe for six weeks, or you've developed a relationship, but what happens after that point? Um, and except for maybe in places like oil-rich Norway, where I know, for example, a number of artists that are doing a project that's 10 years long, but where can afford that kind of funding for an art project that maybe would actually have a meaningful relationship to a social space? Um, people have to drop out, they exit this kind of conversation. They wouldn't be in this room because they've made very different choices and they certainly are not getting recognition within the systems that we're talking about anymore and they can't get funding anymore for their work because it's not functioning within this realm. So I guess I don't, I'm having a struggle with figuring out how to. Thank you so much for saying this. I think it's very important and it brings me to question um, the basic assumptions of many of our rhetorics. Um, because I think actually, I mean, this is, at, at, I, as an educator, I, we have this collective in Vienna called Trafo K, and we do radical pedagogy projects with many people. And at some point, because so many of these questions came up for us, we decided we refuse to initiate any emancipatory project anymore. We are not initiators. We don't want to be initiators. We are not interested in that because this is a terrible role. This is a weird fantasy that sounds good in grant applications, but it's actually unethical. And we decided to change our role from the position of the, I'm going to the bar, who wants a drink? To, <laughs> to the position of the person who stands at the bar and, and, say, and is flirting with people and just saying that I have some knowledge. If you, it might be helpful for you, just let me know. And because we did... Can you buy me a drink? Can you... If you want... No. If you want, I... No. If, we, if you want, we can have a drink together. If you want, we can have a drink together. If you are interested, you are you, we can have a drink together. We can buy each for ourselves or as we want. But... 
But if you are interested, and I don't force you and think about it. And I also have to think about it. So it's rather this, this way of being in a bar. And, um, and the, what happened? I think also really honestly, because I think we do honest, good ethical work. After some years, we have been approached by anti-racist organizations to come and to share our expertise. And they said, hey, we want to do an application and we need your expertise for exactly this part. And they were the ruling body and we just brought in our thing. And this changed a lot. And it made our relations so much better. And then this brought me to think further, to think about the structural dimension of the fantasy of someone coming in the bar buying drinks. And I thought if this is not the the, how the role of the curator has been introduced in a field that actually existed before curators. I mean, if um, the, the, what, what makes me so um, afraid of my own role is that this is a field in which the word facilitation comes all the time. I mean, do we really think that artists need facilitation? I mean, if we think about the history of modern art, then we have to say that it exists only as modern art because artists self-organized. They are able to organize, they are able to self-organize. They don't need an organizer, they don't need a facilitator. So maybe this whole rhetoric of facilitation has something to do with this neoliberal transformation. And now I ask myself, how can I rethink my role? Uh, yeah, not buying the drinks when I enter anymore. But, I mean, I think, just to carry that on, um, the, I think that, you know, th this, this very good example of the anti-racist organization coming to you and saying, we need you to help us with this, is um, a skills exchange situation. Not an exchange, a skills facilitation exchange, rather than a kind of artist facilitator or facilitator as curator exchange. And I think it points to the fact that um, what we need to examine is, is um, a set of skills in a way, we need, to, we need to think through skills and ask very difficult questions about the skills that we have and we don't have. Annetta, for instance, when you were talking about the, the um, hidden curriculum project, you were talking about having to go away and learn about learning, you know, because, because actually what we are so often is tourists in the fields that we, that we are visiting. Yeah, and so you went off and you, you did serious research, and I know because I've read some of it, into d different um, methodologies and practices of learning. And of course, a whole new framework opens up that you know, shifts what, how we understand the, the process of you know, exchanging information for good and for bad. And it seems to me that this, this, this transformative moment that you describe, where you actually have these um, um, uh, application writing skills that you can lend to people is a very important one because it allows us to rethink what are our skills, but it also brings us back to the site of administration and the size of, and the site of management. And actually, we're pretty good at management and, and, and administration, largely because we've had to do it ourselves for so, so long, but, yeah? But what is not addressed here, if you focus on management, Yeah, and you have to sustain it, and there is no money, no money for that. So, 
so, so in this this work, inside outside, uh, happening together, and we are negotiating. I don't know, like we managed to buy capital for this work so far, but uh, it's it is with the struggle. So like and. I mean, you are paid for being uh, hosted at the fire station with occupiers. It's good so far, but in future what's going to happen? They are going to get uh, value uh, through you, uh, so they can manage. But what about future of their funding? How they can manage their museum? And, and what about other workers involved in this uh, initiative? I mean, I think that's somehow like a topic that we are, because if we go into this coffee house in the level that we are talking about, then it's a discussion about the, what is uh, like uh, community and social art practice. I think we are a little bit beyond uh, that discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think point. it's not actually, I agree. And I don't think this is an example of a community art project. Absolutely. I call it a temporary alliance with the occupiers. I just say the occupiers are the people I have been speaking with. I don't say that my project is a project where I facilitate anything. I facilitate absolutely nothing. I do a coffee house. I wanted to do a coffee house from the beginning. Now, we will work. We will be six people there. In the moment, we negotiate about how much they will be paid. But also, I think now here are, the, are my economies. I have, I, I say now they will work 37.5 hours. I, I can show it to you. We have done a manifesto that includes also the economies. So they will work 37.5 hours because this is what people work, like with normal wages in Norway. In these 37.5 hours, they will have every week's Every week, five hours that they can decide whatever they want to do as work. And in order to make these five hours work possible, also in terms of creating or producing something, they have a budget of 1,000 euros for these six weeks. So in five hours a week, they can work and produce something with 1,000 euros. They can also not spend the 1,000 euros and just read a book, paid in their working time, five hours. So for the rest, for the rest, 32.5 hours, they will work hard. They will not sit in meetings and think about themselves. And or if this is the case, then we have to count it down from the numbers and change the shifts. So actually what I would bring in your context is a more rigid thinking together of really of money, time and reflection. <coughs> Um, I agree, and I would push it further, actually. I would say that um, at the moment, organizations like Casco do a huge amount of work that is kind of substrata, and then you get, you, but you have to hook, in order to get your funding, you have to hook everything around maybe, what, five or six exhibitions a year. I, you know, it's five or six in a normal kind of um, uh, gallery of this size in the UK. And so and so what we need to do is look at the conditions for that relation. Because for me it should be the other way around. Yeah? That actually the the managerial work, the education work, the work on uh, on thinking through socialities and thinking through political relations that Casco does, um, albeit for a small community, and this might be the difficulty um, is, is, is the work that it values the most. And the work of um, giving Annette a fee to write on the walls, which produces the artwork, is a byproduct of that work. Yeah? And I think Casco is a very particular organization in this regard, but there are many other organizations that do a bit of this. Yeah? And, and so I think, therefore, why Casco is, is interesting is because, because it's so precisely obvious that it should be the other way around. Yeah? And, and so how do we use Casco as a model through which we can begin to argue with funders and with civic society, to use the term, that actually what needs to be paid for is, is the collective thinking and the collective acting and not. Now, of course, 
every time you write a funding application, and I know you're writing one at the moment or have just submitted one or whatever, every time you do that, you put yourself in a position where you are probably moving a little bit step further and further and you're gradually educating the funders and da-da-da-da-da and it works in this way. But also, you know, you know as Nora and I have kind of agreed on or, you know, um, both, both said, that actually under the violent conditions of neoliberalism in which we work, in which fascism is creeping across Europe, Europe, it's going to be more and more difficult to do that reversal. But that's the work we need to do. So we need to stop, but then also we maybe need to think about whether we actually take, and I again say this from the heart, whether we even take part in short-term projects. That's where the devaluation, uh, devalorization takes place, could you say? Well, devalorizing art as we know. I think that's or a good de. I, I think a devalorization in English, at least, is different from devaluing. Okay, so just to point that out. But devaluing, I would call that devaluing as a f an affirmative process of um, of of starting to reorganize the social structures of value itself. That's the long-term project. You know, ten years. 20 years. Are you also revaluing art in a way? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. This person who yes. says what you and says it in a kind of asshole ish, well, if you turn the question around, aren't I <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, I do wonder because it's like, you know, it like shouldn't, shouldn't like art <laughs> practice be also about all of those yeah, things? Yeah, of so yeah. it's like we don't actually kind of, you know. But I think it already is at Casco. The artists yeah. that Casco works with, or the, 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 the producers, the workers that Casco works with, are already doing it. So it's like, actually, we don't need to have this conversation in this room, really. You know, but, but so I think that, that um, yes, but not at the Museum of Modern Art. Maybe not at back. Maybe not, you know. Where are the funders? Some, somebody was working at the v Victorian Albert Museum. She left. She was like, she left to discuss. Somebody take this microphone away. And Mima, what he's doing in his new vision statement and everything. And he talks about the artist as initiator. And I mean, I'm just really curious to go there because like the localism exhibition that just happened there and everything. And I just wonder about, I don't know, like the, these are just questions I'm really curious about at the moment. It's not even a question I'm posing so much as just bringing the thing to the floor, but like the sovereign artist or the idea of the sovereign artist having this place where they go to produce their work, like what is that anymore? And then... Yeah, I don't know, like it, it makes me really terrified because the whole system of value is changing now, like we're, we're changing now. So like, I don't know, the painters and stuff. <laughs> I just, it just, it, 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 ma it makes me so confused because I'm so excited in so many ways and like so excited to be here today and come to things like this. Uh, but I think there's something that needs to be preserved. And I don't know. <laughs> Can we say that like 200 meters away from here, there is an artist that is doing something <laughs> quite exceptional to me. It is this New World Summit, where actually as an artist is decided to go in a very long-term project uh, where uh, parliamentary activity can become a form to rethink, to renegotiate, to follow in other genealogies of uh, what politics can be within society. And that's, for example, really uh, an example of how, you know, an artist can uh, eat at someone else's uh, table, learn from it, and maybe produce other, other models that can uh, enact other ideas of, of what the institution can, can be and can mean. But I, I mean, I agree and not agree at the same time, because there is also, I mean, I would simply say, do we talk about projects or practices? And these practices that I'm involved in are not only taking place in an exhibition room. 
So there are many other sites that I'm involved in that perpetuate and provoke certain agency that I need to sustain, to, to prepare myself. Pardon? Of course, of course, but next, next door it is. <laughs> keep trying to put the microphone down. <laughs> the summit, but it's like connected with Buck. No, it's come on. It's a taking place in a very meaningful room and in Ukraine. Of course, the university. Something that took place in Of course. Okay, Mateo, hang on. Hang on, Mateo. You know, but you know how it is facilitated, and it is facilitated through a, a set of exhibitionary practices that allow it to be funded. So I think we can't be naive. Oh, Absolutely. Very Absolutely. That's how Royava. I'm not criticizing it, but the artist who we're talking about, Jonas Stahl, himself would say, actually what I need to do is make this permanent. And he knows that the difference between the project and the practice is huge, and it's mainly huge because of financial and political imperatives that love it to be an artistic project and will accept it at that point. But once it becomes serious, like it is trying to be in Royava, where there is a permanent building, but it is still funding through, funded through cultural economics, at that point, it, it, you know, in order to keep Royava going, in order to carry on producing summits, the, summits, the only um, recourse to money that, that Jonas has is through cultural production. And he says himself, the, this is the problem. Yeah, also because it comes from this very specific context uh, where you know, there is also a certain understanding of what cultural bodies can fund and cannot fund. Yeah, but, that, but that's our context. blind just because of this, just not to see also the, uh, how it's, it's a practice. It's not just because of its existence of a project that, uh, that is important. It's important because it's a practice that is uh, also redefining uh, the role of an artist within uh, within uh, the broader discourse where other institutions are involved. I mean, also, you know, yeah, certainly it's, it's being facilitated by cultural funding, but people that are speaking there are people that they, they have nothing to relate to a, a cultural uh, organization. They, they actually, in their daily life, they, they speak other languages. And I think, you know, this, this is what I'm interested in, not the fact that it's being facilitated by uh, a cultural uh, background that you know, wants also to produce this kind but of... But you have to, to make it permanent. You have to mm -hmm. be interested in the other side. Or like so, the, yeah, exactly. the invisible, that side is not visible in the world. Well, it's and been ongoing since 2012, so... And maybe we can switch it around even more, because if you look at um, certain participants or practices that are part of the New World Summit, you can actually see that they are... I mean, for example, the group, uh, the, the Amsterdam-based refugee group, like We Are Here, for example, um, they are actually able to produce practices to make, to at least try to formulate projects to make an effort to actually sustain themselves in their daily life and to continue their struggle by turning their practice into an art practice. Like, they actually receive funding to do their practice because they frame it as an art practice. So, I mean, I think it, it's super complicated. Like, on the one hand, there's the danger of, of an artist co-opting practices and representing a practice and making it part of their own work. But on the other hand, it also brings interesting dynamics and a question of what art is or cultural funds are I think we have to look at both sides. I mean, we have to ask about the economies of cultural projects like this and still um, push, push it towards politics. But then also, if this is the case, it's important also to talk about the politics of the political projects. Mm -hmm. And I personally don't agree with everything that is going on there. And I, I don't feel that um, I have been in many fora in which we could talk politically about this political project. We have most of the time talked about its amazing ability to be at the same time political and artistic. But, the, but if, it, I mean, if it is both at the same time, I would have loved to have a deep 
political debate around and about some of the some of the things that are um, pushed. Perhaps also experts from politics rather than experts in art. Yeah, it's always art people that are talking about this work. And I'll political analysts that I know that have seen this work do not think so well of it. So, but, uh, so I want to also. I want to also. I'm not here to defend this. I'm just saying, like, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> about something that is ongoing that we really don't know what's really happening. And in Brussels one, what was for me really interesting to see was that at the end the representative of a different political organization said that for them that kind of format was more much more meaningful than other institutional ones from the European Union and from yeah. that yeah. allowed them to, to, to meet and you know but they were meeting in the other premises in order to perform a certain diversity, a certain, you know, gathering of, of different uh, uh, political, you know, uh, constituencies. But here they were actually, or in the summit, they were actually able to learn from each other. So this is something I was very interested in, other than, you know, the, of course I also have criticism about uh, the way in which certain things are done and so on. It's not about buying the whole thing. It's about going back to what we were saying before is also what uh, an artist can uh, envision as its role in, in changing certain frames, in, in changing certain speeds and, and visions about what an artist's work can be within the society in the long term uh, uh, span. You know? that's, that's what was my... It's not about you know, taking it as the perfect example of how things should be done, but more like pointing out that things are happening right next to us. That we are talking about this. As is our learning here. I mean, not to, you know, I think there are many, many brilliant projects going on all over the world that are trying to do that. But I think that it's important that we, whilst of course these, um, these examples, we learn from these examples, and we learn from criticizing them and pulling them apart and asking about the political structures of them, as Nora said. But like, for me, it comes down to something quite basic, which is to do with something like sustainability in the common world. You know, it's like how, 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 because we leap from project to project, and we, we, we often leap too quickly to political decisions, it would seem to me, or, or affirmations or assertions, assertions. You know, and I think that actually um, working much more closely with questions of sustaining uh, debates and good habits across a much more kind of common temporality is something we need to move towards. So it might mean withdrawing from biannual structures, it might mean withdrawing from, I mean, I mean, you know, I don't know whether that's the answer, it might not be the answer. We might be able to make an argument that actually these peaks are important to bring things into the open as well, but we might also have that argument. I don't know, I'm kind of torn between these two things. Well, that's a good space. <laughs> Being torn. <laughs> yeah. um, which we can uh, keep and continue to discuss. Uh, because, I mean, I think to talk about uh, New World Summit uh, in this context is uh, super interesting also to continue to learn about the details of uh, your coffee house operation. Mm -hmm. so